0: Well, let's open our Bibles to Ezra chapter 7, please. Ezra chapter 7. Let's look together at these 28 verses tonight as we continue our study uh, through the book of Ezra. Uh, Ezra chapter 7, and I'm going to begin reading at verse number 1. The title of the message is The Hand of God and the Heart of His Servant. The Hand of God and the Heart of His Servant. Ezra 7 1. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Serehi, son of Azariah, son of Hilkai, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Meroth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua. This is challenging, folks. Uh, Son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. Uh, This Ezra uh, went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord. His God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel some of the priests and Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. From the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Now, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, at least that seems to be what Artaxerxes thought of himself. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law, the God of heaven, Peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priest or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of babylonia and with the free will offerings of the people and the priest vowed willingly for the house of their god that is in jerusalem with this money then you shall with all diligence buy bulls rams and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your god that is in jerusalem whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold You may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasures in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, requires of you, Let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, salt, without prescribing how much, whatever is decreed by the God of heaven. Let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you. That it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of the house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the law of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Of course, now this is Ezra again, verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Ezra chapter 7 marks the end of the first division of the book and the beginning of the second division of the book. For instance, eighty. Years have now passed since the first wave of Jews returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel, which took place under the leadership of King Cyrus. So if 80 years have taken place since that occurred, it means approximately 60 years have now passed since the temple was rebuilt and dedicated, such as we read last week at the end Of Ezra chapter 6. So the end of chapter 6 going into chapter 7 is approximately 60 years of time, 80 years again since the first group of exiles returned. And up to this point in our study, all we know of Ezra is that he is the writer of the book, narrating for us the first six chapters. But now we are introduced to him personally and the role that he plays in the return of more. Jewish exiles to Jerusalem. Now the fact that 80 years has passed since the first wave of returnees should cause a couple of things to come to mind. I, I, I wrote down two things here in general. One, a, a new generation needed to be challenged to return and finish what the older generation started, namely restoring the city of. Of Jerusalem, Most likely all those who would end up returning in the second wave were born in Babylon and Persia. And that would have happened after the temple was rebuilt and dedicated at the end of Ezra chapter 6. When you compare Zechariah and Esther, even the opening verses of Nehemiah, along with these final chapters of Ezra, we also see how the Jews were actually doing 60 years after the temple was dedicated. And the truth is, it wasn't all that great. There was a lot of trouble and a lot of shame on the people of God. And the same sins that caused them to go into captivity in the first place was on the verge of being repeated all over again by a new generation. Sins of presumption, sins of formality, even idolatry but ultimately the sin of neglecting god's word it is a reminder that there is a great danger in going through the formality of religion without true repentance for the people of god were going through the formalities but they were not living holy obedient righteous lives they were not repenting of their sins and following the law of God as he had given it. I was thinking about it today as I was studying through this. Jeremiah came to mind. Jeremiah chapter 7. Now this is to a, a different generation of Jews, but it fits appropriately. At Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 9, here's what he said. He said, will you still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered. We're the people of God only to go on doing all of these abominations. And then God adds in verse 11 of that chapter, behold, I have seen it declares the Lord. He says, are you, are you going to continue going through the formality of coming, put it in our text, week after week after week, claiming to be delivered, but that you keep continuing on in your unrighteous ways, in your unholy ways, in your disobedience to God? You see, the truth is, another generation was on the verge of bringing the same type of destruction upon the upon the people, and it needed to be dealt with, which caused me to think of a second thing which is appropriate for them and it's appropriate for us, and that is revival needs to be prayed for and longed for in every generation. Revival needs to be prayed for and longed for in every generation. I think it was Winston Churchill, Churchill who said those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it, and this is certainly true spiritually. It seems like every passing generation of Israelites fell to learn the lessons that their fathers had been uh, judged by God for, and now here they are. A- after the temple was rebuilt, after it had been dedicated, after a successful season of God's work, now uh, the Bible tells us that they're in the they're in the verge of going back in that same routine of idolatry and disobedience and unholiness and formalities of religion, but not truly repenting of their sin. So this is this is kind of what's going on for the last sixty years, and it's at this point. Ezra comes on the scene. The Jews who were living in Babylon and the Jews who were living in Jerusalem both needed a preacher. They needed someone who would proclaim to them the word of God and challenge them to do the will of God. And that is is what preaching is. We, we, We jokingly say from time to time that preaching is the task of comforting the afflicted while afflicting the comfortable. And so here is a here is a season in the life of Israel where the people of God had become comfortable and they needed to be afflicted by a man of God. They needed someone to come and frankly put the fear of God back into their lives. Their consciences have been lulled to sleep and now it was time for an awakening, for conviction of sin, conviction of idleness, for genuine repentance to take place once again. They needed a preacher. They needed someone to speak to them the word of God and so God raised up Ezra. He raised up Ezra to be that preacher that they needed And I think it goes without saying that you and I need a preacher like this in our own lives. Well, what do we know about Ezra? Well, several things that are mentioned here at the beginning. We know that first of all, he was a priest. Ezra was a priest. The opening five verses of chapter 7 show his lineage, which is a very important lineage. Uh, The writer, which is Ezra, goes all the way back to Aaron, the brother of Moses, who was the first high priest of the people. So this lineage puts Ezra in the priestly line. And and in case there's any doubt about that, in verse number 12, when King Artaxerxes wrote a letter to Ezra, he identifies him as Ezra, the priest. So, So what do we know about Ezra? Well, first we know that he was a priest. The second thing we know about him is that he was a scribe. A scribe. But not just any scribe. He was a scribe with an incredible reputation for his prolific work. Verse 6 says that he was a scribe who was skilled in the law of Moses. He was not just a scribe of the law of Moses. He was a scribe who was skilled in the law of Moses. A scribe predominantly was one who copied the scriptures studied the scriptures, and interpreted the scriptures. So Ezra had a, had a God-given gift, a God-given calling upon his life that equipped him to do the work of a scribe. And additionally, it appears that he also worked hard to steward that ability, which ultimately caused him to be skilled in the scriptures, skilled in the word of God. It, it, it's, it's very similar to something that Paul told Timothy. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, to fan into flame the gift of God. When when I was growing up, I memorized it like this. Stir up the gift of God that is in you. Fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. In other words, God has given you a gift, Timothy. Fan it into a flame. Stir it up and work hard at developing that gift into skillful use for the glory of God. And that appears to be what Ezra has done. Ezra had been given a, a God-given gift, a calling, and he's, and he's taken that calling seriously, so seriously, that he's well known as a skilled scribe. The third observation here is not only is he a priest and a scribe, but thirdly, he appears to be an important Government official. He appears to be an important government official. A couple reasons for this. Uh, One is that a scribe at one point in history was also described as uh, holding the position of what we would refer to as Secretary of State. And of course, in the Jewish culture, that would mean Secretary of State for the Jewish. Affairs. Now, I do have to say, you have to do quite a bit of digging on this to bring that up. But some historians and scholars have brought this to light, and I think it is at least worth noting due to the access that Ezra has to the king. Which is the second thing that directs my attention or, or captivates my attention is that in verse 6, that the scripture tells us that the king granted Ezra everything that he asked for. Now, just think about that for a moment. The king gave Ezra everything that he asked for. That obviously indicates that Ezra was in some sort of position to even make requests to the king. Something that not just anyone could do. Additionally, we see that in King Artaxerxes' letter, he gives Ezra a certain task to complete in the role of an official representative of the king. And we'll see some of those tasks in just a moment. But I'm concluding with you this evening that just by pure circumstantial evidence that we can conclude that Ezra is some sort of official. I don't know if he's secretary of state. I don't know if he's just an ambassador. I don't know what he is. But he's in some type of official government capacity in King Artaxerxes' court. Very similar to what we see in Nehemiah, which is very fascinating that we see God using in this frame of work, official political representatives to do things that not just anybody could do. Uh, Men like Nehemiah, men like Ezra, men like Daniel, and others who were put into these positions. So that's what we know about Ezra, okay? He was a priest, he was a scribe, and he appears to be an important government official. Now here's the things that I want you to see about him tonight as we think about the hand of God in the heart of The first thing I want you to see is found in verse 6, is that when it comes to Ezra, number one, the king granted him all that he asked. The king granted him all that he asked. Verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And here it is, the king granted him all that he asked. Now the question is, what what was it exactly that Ezra was specifically asking the king for? And that, brothers and sisters, is whether or not he could lead a group of Jews to Jerusalem to build back the city and continue the work that the previous generation of Jews had begun. Of course, the very fact that he's asking this tells us more information about the character. Of Ezra. It tells us that he was a man of courageous faith. You have to go to the end of the chapter to see how Ezra made this request. In verses 27 and 28, we read it a moment ago, as Ezra is standing before the king and the king's counselors and all of his mighty officers. Perhaps we don't know the setting. Maybe it was a cabinet meeting of some sort. Whatever the case was, Ezra, it says here, took courage. He took courage. And with courageous faith, he stood before the king and he made a request that honestly could have cost him his life, especially if Artaxerxes had interpreted it in a way that went against his kingly desires. Not to mention, as we will see in chapter 8, next week that the actual journey itself would be filled with danger from enemies wanting to destroy the Jews. So the very fact that he's bringing this up before the king and then is willing to lead another group of exiles on this journey to Jerusalem shows us that this man, Ezra, was a man of courage, specifically courageous faith, but he was also a man of servant leadership. Servant leadership. Again, at the end of the chapter, Ezra says, I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And verse 7 and 8 of the chapter make it clear, mentioning three times that Ezra did indeed come to Jerusalem. Three times it says, He came to Jerusalem, He came to Jerusalem, He came to Jerusalem, He led others. Think about this. He led others in walking through this door of opportunity to return to Jerusalem and serve the God of Israel. He was a man of courage. He was a man of leadership. And the king granted him all that he asked. I I do have to just pause and wonder tonight if there is anything in front of you or your family at this season of life that perhaps requires... Courageous faith on your part. Something you know you need to do. But the only way it's going to happen is if you take courage. And if you, by faith, lead your family in that direction. It's the kind of man Ezra was. A man of courage. A man of faith. A man of leadership. And the king granted him all that he asked. And he does so in the form of a letter. We're not going to go back and obviously reread the entire letter, but from verse 11 all the way down through verse 26 is the letter that King Artaxerxes writes to Ezra. And in the letter, let me summarize it for you, he gives Ezra both permission and authority to return. Additionally, he appoints Ezra to investigate the spiritual condition of the land, which might cause us to scratch our heads a little bit. Why is he so concerned about how the people are doing spiritually? Well, again, it goes back to what we have looked at in each of these kingly figures. They, were, uh, they, they, they believed in a plurality of gods, and it, and it did their kingdom best when everybody was getting along with their god. We even read in the letter that he needed the people to be obedient to their god in order for there not to be chaos in Artaxerxes' authority. So this is not because Artaxerxes is a believer and, uh, and by sending them and investigating these things, as he wants to hold them spiritually accountable. No, he just wants his kingdom to stay intact. And for his kingdom to stay intact, he needs you to be faithful to your God, whoever your God is. And that's the purpose of it. He says, Ezra, go back and investigate the spiritual condition of the land. He then instructs Ezra to make some financial decisions for the temple. And then he authorizes Ezra to set up a judicial system, which was missing at this point in Jewish history. And he wanted them to do it according to the law of God. And to all of that, Ezra responded in verse 27, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. And once again, we are reminded, as Proverbs tells us, that it is the Lord who turns the hearts of kings. He had put this into the heart of kings, just like he had put it in the heart of Cyrus, just like he puts it in the heart of those In whom we follow today. Now, here's the thing I want you to say. There is a reason why the king granted Ezra all that he asked. There's a reason why Ezra took courage and led the way that he did and stepped up on faith and did something that was so difficult. There's a reason why. And the reason is the second point. Notice in verse 6. The hand of the Lord his God was on him. So so follow this. The king granted him all that he asked. For, verse 6, the hand of the Lord his God was on him. The, The reason why Ezra had courage to stand before Artaxerxes and other court officials is because the Lord was standing right there with him his hand perhaps on Ezra's shoulder, empowering his faith, empowering his courage. The reason why, as verse 9 says, that Ezra was able to assemble a group of Jews together and lead them back safely to Jerusalem was because, look at it, verse 9, it's because the good hand of God was on him. The sequence is so very important. The king didn't grant Ezra all that he asked because he was a good visionary. The king didn't grant everything that he asked because he knew how to politically uh, put things in such a way to manipulate them. No, no, no. The king granted him what he requested because God's hand was on his life. Friends, it is a reminder that you and I can do nothing apart from God. The only way our lives will possess the strength that we need and the faith that we need and the opportunities that we desire to walk through is if the hand of God is on our lives. I'm going to ask you a question tonight. What is it that you want more than anything else in this life? This is a good time to ask that question. What is it that you want? more than anything else. well, I say to you that the hand of God on our life is more important than anything we could ever want or need. And this is an ongoing theme in Ezra's life. Verse six, in fact, one, two, three, four, five, six times. Six times this phrase is mentioned in chapter seven and eight. Verse six of chapter seven, the hand of the Lord as God was on him. Verse 9 of chapter 7, the good hand of his God was on him. Verse 28 of chapter 7, the hand of the Lord my God was on me. You go to chapter 8, verse 18, we did this by the good hand of our God that was on us. Verse 22 of chapter 8, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. Verse 31 of chapter 8, the hand of our God was on us. Well, it's marvelous to see, but it does beg the question, is the Lord's hand on your life? Could I say confidently tonight that the Lord's hand is on me? The Lord's hand has been in this season of my life. The Lord's hand is on my family. The Lord's hand is on us. Perhaps you're wondering, well, how, how do I know for sure? How do I know if the Lord's hand is on me? Well, follow the sequence. The king granted him all that he asked Because the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Now look at it there at the end of verse 9. And the hand of the Lord his God was on him because his heart was fixed on the word of God. That's the third and final point I want you to see here. His heart was fixed. His heart was set on the word of God. Again, look at it. The end of verse number 9. The good hand of his God was on him. For, for, that's telling us the reason why, right? Just like it said in verse 6, here's the reason why the king gave him everything he asked for. It was because, it was for the hand of God was on his life. And here's why the hand of God is on his life. Because, for, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules. In Israel, Amen. Ezra's heart was fixed on the word of God. And because his heart was fixed on the word of God, the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And because the hand of the Lord his God was on him, the king granted him all that he asked. Amen. Listen to me very carefully. The hand of God will be on us when the word of God is in us. That's how you know the hand of God is on your life. The hand of God will be on us when the word of God is in us. But notice how he breaks this down. This is one of my favorite verses of Scripture in all the Bible. Notice, first of all, that Ezra loved the Scriptures. He loved the Scriptures. Verse 10 says that Ezra set his heart on the law of the Lord. He set his heart on God. That is, he made a, he made a decision. A decision to, to love God's word. In fact, to love God is to love his word. That's how we know that we love him. We love him when we love his word. And it's a decision. A decision. He, he set his heart. He fixed His heart. He purposed in his heart. It's all about his heart and the decision in his heart to love the law of God. It is true all throughout the Bible. It is true in the history of the world that whenever God moves on his people in expressive ways, it always begins with a renewed love for the Bible. God is not moving where a love for the Bible is not Amen. present. Amen. Ezra loved the scriptures. But again, as we often talk about in our relationships, in marriage, so it is in our love for God and His Word. Love is not simply feelings. It's action. Amen. So if you love someone or something, which is a song I choose not to sing tonight, it will be evident By the actions, it'll be evident by the actions that follow your professed affection. In other words, we make choices that prove our love. So it's not enough for Ezra to be identified as one who just loved the scriptures. He shows us through the proof of action that he loved the scriptures, which is the second thing. He not only loved the Scriptures, he studied the Scriptures. He studied the Scriptures. For Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord. And of course, the first step in our love for the Scriptures is our commitment to study the Scriptures. And studying the Scriptures begins with reading the Scriptures. It's so simple, isn't it? But how would our spouse ever feel like we truly love them if we don't talk to them? If we don't listen to what they have to say? If there's no communication? And so it is in our love relationship with the Lord. How can we truly say that we love His Word if we're not listening to Him? if we're not studying him, if we're not learning him, if we're not reading his word. Oh, can I just very practically tonight to challenge you to read the Bible. (laughs) Don't just come here on Sundays and hear the Bible, but go out on Monday and Tuesday and every day of your week and read the Bible. Read the Bible. Read it regularly. Read it confidently. What do you mean by that? I'm talking about confidence that it's the Word of God, that it's not just any other book. I mean, this book is the Word of God. Read it confidently. Read it patiently. Sometimes for me, that means slowly and over again because I didn't get it the first time or the second time, and maybe my mind wandered. So instead of keeping on going, I'm going to back up a little bit and reread what I've done. We we read it patiently. We read it prayerfully, prayerfully. Prayerfully. We're not just reading it to check off the box on the day that is in front of us. We're reading it to meditate on it. Lord, what are you saying to you to, to me? What are you speaking to me about? And then read it studiously. Studiously. Observe what God is saying. Write down things the Lord is speaking to your heart. Educate yourself on it. You see, every time you and I open the Bible, we ought to come to the Scriptures asking this question. God, what do you want me to know and what do you want me to do? What do you want me to know and what do you want me to do? Which leads me to the next demonstration of Ezra's love for the word. He loved the scriptures. He studied the scriptures. Thirdly, he obeyed the scriptures. He obeyed the scriptures. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. It is so simple, isn't it? In fact, in the book of Hebrews, God's word is called the word God. Of righteousness, the word of righteousness. Do you know why? Because the Bible is meant to be lived out. Amen. Now, 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 some of you, some of you, brothers and sisters, love theology, and I love theology, but I've known quite a few people through the years who were students of theology, but they were terrible Christians. They were unholy in their private life. They mistreated others. They didn't take care of their families. So so don't let the head puff up with knowledge of the doctrine and the theology that you possess when that's not the only reason God gave us his word. It's for doctrine... And it's for practice. It's for orthodoxy and for orthopraxy, as there is such a word. It's to be learned. Thank you, brother. It's to be learned. It's to be lived. Ezra was skilled in the law of God because he studied it and he lived it. And he lived it. Would anybody ever take him seriously if all he was known was was a student? He's a student. Well, he sure knows the Scriptures. But really? Really? He's not obeying them. He's not living them. He's not honoring them. You see, before any of us can ever teach the Word of God to others, we must ourselves live the Word in front of others. Most importantly, in front of God. In front of God. James said you're to be a doer of the Word, not just a hearer. You're to be a doer. Do what it says. Obey it. Live it out. You see, if our relationship with this book is simply hearing and never doing, then we have deceived ourselves about the nature of our heart. Namely, that the Word of God, who is the Son of God, is not in us. You see, the greatest impact on this world you'll ever make, the greatest impact you'll ever make, is obeying the Word of God. Obeying the word in front of our children, our spouses, our families, and everyone else who watches our life. He obeyed the scriptures and then finally he taught the scriptures. He taught the scriptures. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And I will add... We need more teachers of the word in the pulpits of America today. We'll talk about that more next week as we come to it in chapter 8. In fact, it is the theme of the chapter. Where are the priests? Where are the Levites? They're missing. They're missing. We need them. We'll come to that next week. But some of you are putting all this together and you think, all right, you're telling me these are demonstrations of love. That if if I I truly love the the Bible, if I truly love the Scriptures, there's some choices, some actions. I I, I have to to study it. I have to read it. I have to obey it. Now you're telling me I have to teach it? I don't don't teach it? I don't have the gift of teaching? Well, friend, understand this this is not limited to men like me who have been called shepherd the flock of God with the Word of God. Every one of us as believers can teach the Bible every day, every day, in groups or with individuals, at work or with our neighbors. We demonstrate a love for Scripture when we are leading others to Scripture. It may be as simple as coming into contact with a coworker who you know is discouraged and they're down and their outlook on life is bleak. And it may just be God using you in that moment, something you read that morning, something you've been studying about in your small group. That verse come to mind and you just take that verse and you say, let me, let me just share something with you that, that Scripture says. I have a pulpit to be a teacher. In fact, most of you will never stand in this pulpit or any other pulpit. But we all have a responsibility to teach. Let us not limit ourselves to vocational teaching only. And I'll give you one of those places. In fact, it may be one of the most important places to teach the Bible, and that's our homes, our homes. The bedrock of God's design for the perpetuation of the faith is by moms and dads who love the Bible, who study the Bible, who obey the Bible, and who teach their kids the Bible. Amen. Amen. It was the heartbeat of what God commanded the Jewish people to do. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, listen to me. The Lord our God is one Lord. There's only one. There's not many. There's one God, and it's the God of heaven. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And these words that I command you today, yes, the words that say there's one God, and you are to love him, heart, soul, and mind, they shall be in your soul and on your heart, and you shall teach them. You shall teach these things diligently. To who? To your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house, around the dinner table, when you, when you walk by the way, telling them to clean up the room. And when you lie down. And when you rise up. You see, this whole concept of teaching the scriptures, it's first parental in nature. It's parental in nature. You, you can't pass this off to me. Right. Amen. Right. Your kids, if you're faithful, hear me at least twice. Some only once and many others every other month. Some only Christmas and Easter. Right. You can't pass that on me. That's your responsibility. Right. And for my four children, it's my responsibility. This is, this is parental in nature. It's also to be intentional, intentional. What does he say to do? Teach them diligently, diligently. Be intentional about it. Be intentional about it. There ought to be formal times of teaching. There ought to be informal times of teaching, but we ought to always be teaching, which means it's continual. It's continual. When you sit down, teach. When you go for a walk, teach. When you're lying down, teach. When you get up in the morning, teach. Put certain things in place where the Word of God and the Scripture is constantly being taught. We, we, When our kids have Alexas in the room, maybe it's because we're lazy and we don't want to holler, and so we just say, Alexa, announce. What would you like for me to announce? Kids, it's time for supper, you know, and come on down. They hardly listen to it half the time anyway. But we have have certain things. You know, Sunday morning, you know, there's there's no listening to Mickey Mouse Clubhouse on Sunday morning. You know, it's it's time to to listen to the Gettys or whoever we have on at that moment in our life. And you know what? That rule is just kind of slowly faded into the background. We don't tell them that anymore. It just cheers our hearts so well that sometimes before Kathleen and I are ever even out of the bed, Keegan's Alexa and Ellie's Alexa goes off. Kate's the heathen one. Everybody else's Alexa goes off and, and they're singing to the top of their lungs. I mean, it's just when they get up, when they go to bed throughout their day, it's teaching them the word of God. And, and follow me, and I'll mention this and, and we'll close. It's doctrinal. This is doctrinal. It's not just teaching them your outlook on life, by the way. That's, that's not... It's not just teaching them your political viewpoints. That's not. It's it's doctrinal. It's parental. It's intentional. It's continual. It's doctrinal. What am I supposed to teach you? That there's one God, and you need to love that God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And while I would love to continue on this, The point I'm trying to make is that when Ezra returned to Jerusalem with the second wave of Jewish exiles, he was coming with a bigger agenda than just rebuilding a city. His goal was to return them back to the Bible. That's our series title, isn't it? Return. And have we ever really truly returned to God? Have we ever even truly come to Him unless we have come to Him through His Word? Through His Word. Again, the king granted Ezra all that he asked because the hand of God was on him. And the hand of God was on him because his heart was set, set on the words of God. I close with this verse. Psalm 119, 173. It's a long book. Psalm 119, 173. Here's what it says. It's a prayer to God. Let your hand be ready to help me. You know what we're talking about? The hand of God. Let your hand be ready to help me. For I have chosen your words. I've chosen your words. That is the hand of God. And the heart of his servant. When we choose his words. His hand is on us. And through courage and faith, opportunities are opened up that we see clearly as the will of God for us.